in reflecting the teaching of the scriptures, our Westminster Confession of Faith uh, describes the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, as being a summary of God's moral law. That is, it captures a holy life to which God calls us, a godly life. Within those Ten Commandments are what some people refer to as two tables of the law. The first table consists of the first four commandments, and it has a greater vertical emphasis. It reveals our obligation as God's people to God directly. Uh, The first commandment captures that well. You shall have no other gods before me. The second table of the law consists of the latter six commandments, and it has a greater horizontal emphasis, calling for our obligation to our fellow man, beginning with the the fifth commandment, you shall honor your father and your mother, and going on, you shall not murder or steal or commit adultery, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. It's no coincidence when Jesus was asked in Matthew 22, what is the greatest commandment, he responded by drawing upon Two commandments, one calling for man's obligation to God from Deuteronomy 6, the the great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said there's a second like it, calling for man's obligation to his fellow man from Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is a helpful and and crucial uh, paradigm in our own thinking about our Christian life and our Christian faith. Well, we are moving toward the end of 1 Thessalonians, Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica that he, along with Silas and and Timothy, helped to found. And here we see these two priorities, these two emphases, uh, the vertical obligation that we have and the horizontal obligation that we have. Paul draws attention to these uh, two aspects. So let's... See them as we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 22, or 12 to 22. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. Listen now to God's word. Paul writes, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, and hold fast what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. Over the centuries, people have uh, used different metaphors to uh, capture or describe uh, the church, the character of the church, the calling of the church. Some have said that the church is like a, a school. God's people are students, they're called Uh, to gather, to be taught, and learn the things of God. Uh, Others have said uh, the church is more like a hospital where 
the hurts and the pains and the wounds of God's people are remedied, are helped, are comforted. Others have said the church is like a missionary post. People are to gather to be equipped for the larger purpose of being sent out on the mission, the the larger mission of of the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps there's truth in all of those uh, metaphors. The scriptures themselves use dozens of metaphors to describe us, to describe the church. The church as a body, one unit but with many members. The church as a temple in which uh, God dwells. The church as a vineyard where God is at work. The church as a flock that God leads and shepherds and cares for. But as I've noted in the past, the the most uh, common metaphor, the most common uh, picture that is given of the church is that of a household. The family of God. The church is truly a family, a spiritual family. And this picture of the church as a family or a household is important, not only because Paul has already used this family familial language, as we saw just in the previous chapter when he said, now concerning brotherly love, using that language of brother. We see it again here a couple different times in verse 12. We urge you brothers. And in 14, we urge you brothers, a word that means brothers and sisters, Uh, The church is a family. We share the same Heavenly Father, the same Redeemer in Christ, the same Holy Spirit indwelling all of us. But here, the familial language is crucial because Paul is seeking to impress upon this congregation the kind of relationships, the shape that these relationships are actually to be taking in the life of the church. Whether it's an immediate family or the family of God, not all the members of the household are the same. They're of equal worth. They're of equal value, but not all the members. In fact, none of the members of an immediate family or the family of God are the same. Even if you're an identical twin, you're different than your twin brother or Sister, is anyone an identical twin here? All right, we'll talk about that a little bit later. You're being interviewed. But I bet you're you're different than your twin sister, right? I've known twins. Some of us have known twins. They they are definitely different uh, from one another. Uh, We're all different Every member of a household has a particular personality, a particular set of gifts, and particular needs. And so what Paul is doing here essentially is he's holding up a large mirror for this congregation to look at themselves and those around them to see individual people and to see them according to their needs. And that's part of what Paul is focusing in on. The church is a Needy people. And he draws out some of those particular needs. The weak, the idle, I-D-L-E. The word referring to those undisciplined or their lives are in disorder. The faint-hearted. The church is needy. Uh, Our family is currently going through this devotional called None Else by Joel Beakey. I think it was actually uh, 
offer to the women of the church. I'll return it. I'm not a woman, but women in my household are benefiting from it. And recently, it's a 31-day devotional on the attributes of God. And recently, we covered the attribute of God's aseity, his aseity, his absolute independence. His existence rests on nothing outside of himself. That is not the case for the rest of creation, including you and me. We are dependent. We are needy creatures. And Paul is identifying some of those particular and potential needs. Some may be feeling weak, so he says, help the weak. Some may be faint-hearted, he says, encourage the faint-hearted. Some may be idle, so he says, admonish the idle. And I think what Paul is doing here is not only very practical, but in a lot of ways it's quite countercultural to the way people are viewed in our society today. Often people are recognized today and defined according to their group identity. Maybe it's based on race or economics or gender or occupation. But what's Paul doing here? Paul's calling the church to give attention to the individual according to their needs. And while a congregation is one in Christ, it's made up of individuals with a vast array of different life circumstances and emotional states and various trials. And the first individuals that Paul gives attention to in this list might be a bit surprising to us. Verse 12 and 13. It's the leaders. Verse 12. We ask you, brothers, congregation, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Are the leaders uh, needy? Now, Paul may be addressing leaders in general. This is a, a church in its infancy. It's just been established. Maybe there's development still happening by way of leadership. More likely, I believe, he's referring to the office holders, the elders. We know Paul was a solid Presbyterian. Uh, <laughs> but it, it really is what's distinguishing about these leaders that we should be focused on. That's what Paul Highlights, they do three things mentioned here. They labor among you. Paul's probably referring to they're, they're following in my footsteps, Paul's saying. Remember back in chapter 2, he reminded the church, I labored and I toiled with you night and day. Right? So, so these are to be people who are laboring, who are working, who are serving for, for the kingdom and for the body of Christ. So there's labor. Two, they lead. He says, they are over you in the Lord. Paul will mention years later when he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, elders are called to direct the affairs of the church well. So there's leading, there's laboring. Three, they are to admonish you. This is a ministry of warning and the ministry of the word and of teaching. Now, I had mentioned that the body of Christ is a needy people. That includes the leaders. What, what is the need of the leaders? Well, to borrow from John Calvin, what he said in regards to this passage is that they need enthusiasm for their work. 
enthusiasm. Enthusiasm can wane. So, the brothers are exhorted, and sisters, to do two things in regard to their leaders here. One, to respect them. That's what he says. It's a word that means to know, to appreciate, to have regard for them. But notice, Paul doesn't stop with respect. He goes a step further. You might hear someone say, or you've said it before, of, of a president of a, of a nation or a prime minister, uh, a, a, a magistrate, that I respect the office. I even respect the man, but I don't like him or her. Right? Paul goes further, and he says, not only are you to respect them, but verse 13, and to esteem them very highly in love. Now, sometimes that may be a great challenge. Maybe that re- even requires forgiveness at times or overlooking an offense or being particularly gracious since leaders themselves are weak and sinful. But I think the most important point here about this respect and esteem is what it is for. What is it for? Because of their work. Because of their work. Calvin, again, says, this work is the edification of the church, the eternal salvation of souls, the restoration of the world. In short, it's the kingdom of God and of Christ. So Paul's point is that to respect, to esteem, to encourage, that is to take an interest in in, in leaders and in one another, is to take an interest in the kingdom. It's not respect or appreciation first for the benefit of the leader. It's respect for the leader in order to serve a greater end that we're all called to serve, which is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's freeing for the people of God. One's interest in this is not first for the leader. That's not the end. It's for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus So Paul highlights the leaders here, that horizontal plane. But then he moves from leaders to the whole congregation in verse 14. He he says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, uh, be patient with them all. How would we know if one is weak if we don't know the person or if they are faint-hearted or if they are uh, idle So Paul here is calling the church to reflect really what Christ has done in our own lives incarnationally. Remember, the Apostle John describes the ministry of our our Lord Jesus there in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He He came, he moved into our world, our environment, our situation, our particular lives. And so it's really here a call to reflect the ministry of Christ incarnationally. Our our Lord does not minister to his people from a distance or even at arm's length. He, He rolled up his sleeves and he entered into, really we could say, the mess, the mess of a sinful and broken world. And and Paul's mentioning some of those aspects. Idleness, faint-heartedness, weakness, sinfulness. And so I think part of the picture that Paul's painting here is that of a messy one. 
And he's calling the church to enter into it. Uh, You may or may not be familiar with the name Mike Rowe. Uh, Back in the early 2000s, for a number of years, he hosted a series of shows on the, the Discovery Channel called Dirty Jobs. Every episode was... Uh, Mike not only identifying some of those most difficult and and messy and I would say at times kind of stomach-churning kinds of jobs exist in our country, but then he he would go alongside them. He would do uh, the work himself. I remember some of them. Uh, Shark suit tester. Somebody's got to do it. (laughs) Roadkill cleaner. I had not thought about that. That's a dirty job. A mosquito control officer, sewer inspector, a pig slop processor. Uh, there's some dirty jobs out there. Jobs that bite, jobs that smell. Uh, but it's not just jobs, right? It's our lives. Our lives can get messy. Faint-heartedness, being downcast, idle. Weakness, the temptation to pay back evil for evil. Paul, Paul's calling for the whole church to enter into that. Allowing others to enter into our circumstances. Uh, this past week in, in meeting with uh, Hannah Sung, uh, she gave just some excellent insight. I uh, hadn't heard this before. She said, you know, essentially, and I'm paraphrasing, we as believers can be uh, well committed to the church with a capital C. You know, we're, we're committed to the doctrine of the church. We're, we're committed to the idea of church. But we can struggle to be committed to church with a lowercase c. The local church. That, that can be more of a challenge. That's where our brothers and sisters are up close and personal and we uh, engage one another and see and feel uh, the mess of one another's lives. And yet that's, that's where our Lord ministers. That's where our Lord has promised to be and to minister. And we get to share in that wonderful calling of encouraging, of coming alongside, of building up one another. It's messy, but it's where Christ is working. So there's a horizontal emphasis very strongly in this passage, but then Paul transitions. It's, it's, it's a strong transition in verse 16 from communal life, life engaged with one another, to the really the private, personal, devotional life, life vertically with God. And he puts it this way, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Rather, test everything. Hold fast what is good and abstain from every evil. You may have noticed in this passage and throughout the whole section here of of 12 through 22 that that Paul has offered numerous imperatives. Uh, It's what some call a hortatory section. That's a 50-cent word meaning that it contains one command after another, one exhortation after another, and and somewhat typical of Paul's letters. Uh, These are short, terse statements, and they don't have a lot of explanation to them, behind them. So it's kind of a rapid-fire approach that 
I, I, carries a lot of punch. And part of the reason it carries a lot of punch is that Paul's intent is that for the hearer, when you hear these, when you read these words, without an explanation as to context or circumstances, the hearer is called to take these words and apply them in their own life situation. So that when he says rejoice always, I'm thinking, what does it mean for me in my life context to be rejoicing always? Maybe amidst circumstances where joy does not tend, does naturally lead in our lives. When we hear, give thanks always, what does that look like in my life? Perhaps amidst various difficulties or trouble or pain or loss. So Paul fires off five main commands here. And and these are to give shape to our life in God. To be a rejoicing people. To be a praying people. A thankful people. A spirit-centered or spirit-filled people. And a word-centered people. And, And taken together, these really are to define much of who we are. Notice the first three are positive. They're put in a positive form. They're very closely related to each other. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Notice again the language of all. Rejoice always, pray continuously, give thanks in all circumstances. What Paul's driving at here is the notion of constancy. Constant, just as the sun constantly shines and constantly burns. These things are to be shining and burning in our lives. A constancy, a consistency uh, to them. What does it mean to rejoice? Rejoicing is not a, a mere happy face or a bright countenance. We would prefer that in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. It may include that. But it goes beyond an external look. And it goes deeper than a mere emotion, rejoicing. Jonathan Edwards called joy a holy affection. Where the truth of God, who God is and what God has done, not only touches on our minds, but it takes hold of our desires and our hearts, including our emotions. In fact, Edwards went so far as to say, this is the ultimate purpose for which God created the world and you and me. He he put it this way, one line. The end of the creation, that is the ultimate goal of the creation, is that the creation might glorify God. Now, what is glorifying God but a rejoicing at that glory that he has displayed? So God created the world and us that we might Rejoice that we would be a joyful people. It is to delight, to be satisfied in God. What a kind, what a benevolent God that he would create us so that we would know and have joy. Remember Paul's words in Philippians 4. Some call it the epistle of joy, his epistle of joy. He said, I know what it is to have plenty and what it is to have little. I've learned the secret of being content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Contentment 
is a life satisfied. It's a life filled. To use the metaphor of food, or the picture of food and mealtime, it's that point toward the end of the meal when we say or we feel, I'm satisfied. I'm not stuffed, as we might say, or might happen, or, or I'm hungry, but I'm satisfied. So joy is the life of one spiritually content and satisfied because he has everything that he needs through his life in Jesus Christ. And one of the primary ways to that life is in the pursuit of God through prayer, which is fellowship and communion with God. It's offering our heart to him. So Paul says, pray without ceasing, or perhaps better, pray without fail, some some put it. Pray without fail. And what does that lead to? Thanksgiving. Give thanks in all circumstances. There's a trio there. Paul's used another trio of faith, hope, and love in this letter. He uses that trio elsewhere. But here we have a different trio. Rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. We see it here in Thessalonians. We also see it in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ. Joy is rooted in prayer a life in communion with God, and joy and prayer lead to a thankful life. Uh, last week, for a few days, our family went to, to the Cape, uh, on the Cape, not in the Cape, on the Cape, and one of the towns we walked through had a uh, clothing store, and they were selling a brand called Life is Good. It's kind of bold. If you're going to wear that, I suppose, things are probably going well. Or if you put it on and you're having a grumpy day, you probably forgot that you put that on. But, uh, but sometimes life, life does not seem to be going good. But Paul's giving us a recipe for a life that is good, godly. Not because it's smooth, not because it's comfortable or simple, but it's good because it's a life in God and with God. So he ends with two do-nots. Don't quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Prophecy. This is the word of God proclaimed. It is the word of God taught. Prophecy, the prophetic word. This is God's word. So with these two things, we have the person of God and the word of God. Don't quench the spirit. The, The person of God, the Holy Spirit, is in our midst. We have a person in our midst actually dwelling within us. And, and, he's, and he's working. That person's working for our good. He's not far removed or passive. He's near us. He's teaching, encouraging, humbling, growing, comforting. He's doing all of those work, works within us and in our midst. And Paul's saying, don't, don't quench that. Don't suppress that. Welcome, welcome his ministry, the ministry of his presence, and the ministry of his word, not only for you, but also for the good 
of the congregation, of the whole people of God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we pray that you would impress upon our hearts and minds this, your word, your word which is good, which you have offered for the good of our souls. We pray that you would use it to shape us in the likeness of Christ, that we would increasingly be a people who engage one another, who live incarnationally, who, who, who enter into one another's uh, space and lives that, that we can help and encourage and receive ministry. Indeed, help us, Lord, to be the, the body of Christ in, in a way that reflects your word. Give us wisdom. Give us patience. Give us joy. We pray that you would root our lives, Lord, by your Holy Spirit in these wonderful characteristics that, 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 that they would define us. That we would be a people who are rejoicing and praying and thankful. And that would, this would overflow and bring a pleasing aroma to you. We offer these things in Jesus' name. Amen.